Thank you, Brother Richard, for that prayer of supplication. And I greet each of you and thank you for being here today and affording me this great opportunity to prayer, uh, to preach the Word of God prayerfully, having studied over it and now have the opportunity to open up and expound upon this portion of God's Word that uh, the Lord has appointed to me to share with you this morning. And I certainly don't take it for granted, the fact that you have chosen to be here and that your hearts are open to what God has to say through me using His Word this morning. And I would pray that you would have uh, eager, attentive ears to hear, and not only to hear, but to apply the, uh, the truths of these uh, portions of God's Word this morning. We'll be looking at Luke chapter 6 as we resume our walk through the Gospel of Luke in this series of messages that I've entitled, Follow Me, and hence singing songs like Footsteps of Jesus, uh, certainly keep that fresh on our minds and that's what uh, we are about as disciples of Jesus Christ we are followers of his you may recall earlier in chapter 6 we were looking at um, verse 12 where Jesus went up on the mountain and uh, there he prayed all night and after that time of consulting with the Father and the Holy Spirit Jesus then uh, entered into that monumental uh, task of appointing the twelve who would be the apostles, the leaders of the church that is to come. And, and so these men, uh, their names are listed. We I walked through some of the, the, the backgrounds and the groupings of these apostles. And so uh, as we move further, we, we are now uh, watching as Jesus is transitioning from that moment and, and now going back to the multitudes. And speaking of that, Jesus, as I pointed out earlier, his popularity is growing exponentially. Uh, in both uh, uh, in, in response of the people, but the, the scope of his influence and, and his popularity. And, and, and we know at one point later in the um, gospel account, we'll see where Jesus has attracted as many as 5,000 men. And Bible scholars calculate, including the women and children, that, that could be a crowd in excess of 20,000 people gathered to hear this one man. Uh, not an ordinary man, not an ordinary rabbi or teacher, someone that obviously has captured the hearts and the minds of so many and is, is attracting so many. But, but, but let's be careful not to be distracted by the sheer magnitude of his ministry and, and, and how many people he's, he's attracting. But let's also appreciate the fact that, that his was a comprehensive ministry. And we'll see that as we look here beginning in Luke chapter 6 verse 17. And so let's read verse 17 to, to start us off here, um, uh, following Jesus' appointment of the twelve apostles. It says, And he came down with them. Obviously, he called them up on the mountain where he was, and now he's, he's coming down with them. Uh, that would be the twelve apostles, by the way. And he stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, and, Jer and Jerusalem, and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. And let's just stop there. Because as we look at how comprehensive the ministry of Jesus is, there's a couple things I want to point out to you. See, Jesus has exhibited and is exhibiting at this point what would be unprecedented geographical attraction. No one. His bringing people together like this man, Jesus. Some called him Jesus of Nazareth. We know him, Jesus, the Son of God. 
But, but having said that, as you look at the text there, it makes it clear to us that he's attracting uh, people, uh, a wide variety of people, including Jews. Uh, as, as you look at that verse there in verse 17, it talks about uh, a multitude of people from all Judea. And, and that, would, that would imply not just the region of Judea, so as to exclude Galilee, but it's basically saying all Jews are coming to him, or people from all of the areas that, that Jews occupy, but also Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is used there almost in, in a uh, typological way because Jew, Jerusalem represents the epicenter, the heart of Judaism. And so not only do you have a average run-of-the-mill everyday Jews coming from all over uh, you know, Judea and, and, and Galilee and, and other regions, Jewish people, but you have the elite the, the Jewish leaders who, who are coming, most of them coming primarily to spy on him on behalf of the Sanhedrin because with this kind of popularity, they're growing very suspicious and threatened by his popularity. And so you've got Sadducees, you probably have Pharisees and scribes. So you have a wide variety of people who make up this, this great multitude that Luke is speaking of here. But then also notice that he makes reference to uh, Tyre and Sidon, which represents Gentiles. And it's interesting because as we think historically about these two cities, if you were to go back in the book of Jeremiah in chapter 26 through 28, you see there God uh, condemning those two cities, Tyre and Sidon, because they represented the worst of the worst of paganism and immorality. And so you see Gentiles coming from as far as the Mediterranean coast, which would be north and west of Galilee, and, and, and a region that had a, a, a notorious reputation of being pagan. So, so just imagine the crowd that's gathering there at the base of that mountain or, or on that level place as Jesus is coming down with his disciples. The scope of his ministry is including Jews, Jewish leaders, religious leaders, Gentiles, but not only Gentiles, but people who are coming from one of the most pagan regions in the whole area. Jesus is attracting many people with various levels of interest as, as well. As you look at verse 17, carefully dissect who's in, included in that. You'll see three groups. First of all, when he says he came down with them, I pointed out to you, first and foremost, at the, at the core of that group are his apostles, those that he has just freshly anointed, appointed to be the leaders of the, of the coming church. Those who would be the closest to him. Those that he would confide the most in. Those that he would hand pick and hand train, if you will, in following him as disciples and who would emerge as leaders. So you have the apostles there, but then as you read further there, it says, with a crowd of his disciples. So you got your apostles and then the, 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 the next concentric circle of those gathered would be his disciples. And disciples are those who have chosen to follow Christ. That could be because, as I pointed out last time, it could be because Christ approached them as he did with uh, 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 Peter and, and Andrew and James and John and said, come follow me. But then there are those that, that have heard him teach and heard him preach and they, they've made the self-disclosed decision themselves. This is going to be my rabbi. I'm, we'll follow him. We like his teaching. We like what he's doing. 
So they have appointed themselves to be his disciples and they've chosen to follow him. So this group that talks about that he talks about there, this crowd of disciples are, are those that he has called and those who have chosen to follow him, but they are nonetheless followers of Christ. And then on the, on the outlying area of that vast horde of people that have gathered, that great multitude are, 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 is just the, what we call, scholars call the, the mildly curious. Those who, who are just attracted because of the activity of what's going on around the life and the ministry of this Jesus of Nazareth. And their stories have gotten out. And they've said, you've got to come and hear this guy. And you've got to come and see the things that he's doing. And, and, and of course, the stories have gotten out about the great miracles that he's working and, and, and all the things that he's teaching. So we see Jesus is, is, is covering a wide geographical area and then also within that uh, region he's drawing different types of people to, to himself. And so that is the, con the, the, the consistency of this multitude if you will. But then also understand that Jesus' authority is revealed through various powerful demonstrations. This is his, the comprehensiveness of Jesus' ministry is not just in the scope of those he is reaching, but it's in what he's doing. For instance, as we look there, he talks about, it talks about his divinely powerful teaching, demonstrating his authority. Of the authority that captures the attention of people over even the law and, and religion. He's teaching with authority like no one they've ever heard before. If you remember back in Luke chapter 4 verse 32 it says, And they, talking about the multitudes, and they were astonished at his teaching. His word was with authority. This is unlike anything the Pharisees has ever taught or the scribes or any of the run-of-the-mill rabbis. So he's demonstrating his authority in his teaching, but it doesn't stop there. Because as we see, the people are coming not only to, to hear him in verse 17 there, chapter 6, but to be healed of their diseases. So Jesus in his comprehensive ministry is exhibiting authority in teaching but also he's demonstrating through his empowered healing his authority over the physical body and over disease and people are coming with all types of diseases whether it be lameness blindness uh, leprosy and he's healing them of everything this has never happened folks and so it's drawing people from all over, there's a great interest in him. But then also we see Jesus exhibiting his authority, not only in, over the law and over religion, over the mind, if you will, over the physical body, but Jesus, as he carries out this comprehensive ministry, exhibits his authority even over Satan and demons. Look at verse 18 as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits and they were healed. You might say they were exorcised. The demons were uh, expelled from their, their spirits, from their, 
mind and from their lives and people who have lived in absolute torment and instability and subjection to evil thoughts and actions and self-destructive behavior are now experiencing a wonderful deliverance from the, the power of Satan and, and demons. Oh, listen, this ministry of Jesus was an all-encompassing ministry and drawing people from all over the area. But then, you know, let's not just lose ourselves in, in awe of the comprehensiveness of the ministry of our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Son of God. But folks, don't overlook the fact that His was also a compassionate ministry. You know, don't, don't let the, the signs and wonders and, and the cerebral part of Jesus' ministry, even though His teachings are divine and, 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 and timeless, and the authority of God's word, but, but understand there's a heart in his ministry. And it's, and it, you know, when we think about the church today, we should have a comprehensive ministry. Our ministry should be teaching the word of God. Our ministry should be demonstrating the authority of the word of God. Our ministry to the, to the community around us should include healing, praying for those who are sick that call upon us to, to, to call upon the one who is the great physician and healer. Or even people who are in, in bondage to evil spirits. Listen, so we, we, we can have a part of that in praying for people who are being tormented but also, we shouldn't be caught up in just those, those sign evidences or the cerebral part of ministry. Our ministry should be a ministry of compassion. A church that ministers simply through the process of going through programs and going through actions as so as to get the attention of the community without putting their heart into it doesn't understand the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so I want to cause you just to stop and to reflect that it is an important part of the ministry of Christ, his, his, his motive, as well as his scope, his motive was love. The Lord's manifestation of power was motivated by his divine love. Jesus loved. He didn't come into this world to impress people with power. You know, we, if you'll just bear with me to to take you back to chapter 4, you recall when Jesus, after his baptism, was taken out into the wilderness to be tempted. And you remember when he was being tempted by Satan? At one point in that three-stage temptation, in verse 9, which says, He, Satan, brought him, Jesus, to Jerusalem, set him up on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If, better translated, since, Satan knew who he was. So, since you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Josephus, the historian, said that would have been a distance about 450 feet. Perched upon a pinnacle in the highest point of the temple wall. And he said, just jump, Jesus. And, and if that's not good enough, he went on to quote some scriptures. In Psalm 91, where he, he told Jesus, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you and in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone Jesus don't you get it just put on a show you want to win the people 
Go ahead, jump off of the highest point of the temple. Let the people see you plunging down towards the cobblestone below. And just at the moment that you're about to be dashed to pieces on the rock, the angels scoop you up and you go, ta-da! But folks, Jesus didn't come into the world to impress people with mere power. He came motivated by the love of His Father God. And he, instead of choosing to demonstrate sheer power and, and, and be a, a popularity thing, he came to exhibit God's love. He chose to reveal his divine power in a benevolent and in a beneficial way, not a selfish way. Jesus wasn't thinking about himself when he was doing his demonstrating the power that he possessed. He was always looking at and seeing and responding to the needs of those around him. His earthly ministry was a beautiful portrayal of God's perfect love. Let me say that again. It just causes me to get excited. His earthly ministry was a beautiful portrayal of God's perfect Love, And we see his compassion demonstrated over and over, not just in the Gospel of Luke, but all through the Gospels. For instance, in the Gospel of, of Matthew, chapter 9. If you want to turn there, you can, or just listen. In, that, in Matthew 9, 36, this is what it tells us. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. Jesus was moved with compassion when he looked upon people in their hurting state. But then also in Matthew chapter 14, picks up with this same theme in Matthew 14, verse 14. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. Jesus loved people. God loved People. Jesus was, mo he was motivated in demonstrating his power to meet the, the observed needs of the people around him to show them that God was not only all-powerful, but God was uh, immensely loving. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, in verse 41, this is the account where the leper comes to Jesus the man with the leprosy. And he says, if you're willing, you can, can make me clean. And Jesus, we're told there in verse 41 of Mark chapter 1, Jesus was moved with compassion, put out his hand and touched him, the unthinkable. That made him ceremonially unclean. But Jesus wasn't worried about that. He was cleaner than anyone. And he touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. You see the wonderful depth of Jesus' compassion there? I like going back to the, Luke, uh, to the Gospel of Luke. We look ahead just a little bit over to chapter 7, an account that I think so wonderfully distributes or displays the, the, the immense love of, of the Son of God. There in chapter 7 of Luke, in verse 12, we're told that he encountered a, a funeral procession, if you will. And in that funeral procession, of course, they were carrying the body of a dead young man. And in that funeral procession was his mother, a widow. He was her only son. This was her only hope. He was her only hope. Her only hope for future. 
And now in that funeral procession, they're making their way and Jesus and his disciples encountered. And it says in verse 13, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, do not weep. And he came and touched the open coffin and those who carried him, speaking of the, the, the corpse, said, young man, I say to you, arise. And when he was, and he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented himself to his mother. Folks, what love! Jesus exhibited while demonstrating the divine power that he had. And this is the Lord that we serve. Our Lord's mission, just think about it, his mission on this earth was an expression of the love of God. Did not Jesus tell Nicodemus in John 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world. He loved the world and did what? He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus understood that the reason that he was here on this earth was not to build a palatial structure where he could live in and comfort and pleasure and everybody come and bow. Jesus understood that he was here as a divine act of God towards sinful humanity and he would become the very propitiation for all of us who were lost in our sins. He understood the significance of what Paul said in Romans 5, 8 when he says in this God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were sinners Christ died for us. He understood the significance of what John would later write in 1 John 4, 9 when he says, In this, God, God's love towards us was manifested. He has sent his only begotten Son into this world that we might live through him. Listen, understand and appreciate the comprehensiveness of the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, but also don't overlook, overlook the wonderful element of compassion that made up his ministry. And now... We move further in, in this text as we look at verse 20. Because now you, you see the set, the, the set in this stage there. Jesus with this great multitude. He's there on, a, on, on what Luke describes as a, as a level place there in verse 17. I realize some, some scholars take that, that from the, particularly from the King James translation where it goes on to say a plain, a, a flat place. Uh, I like how the, the one commentary I was reading and the translation that I'm reading of the, the, the New King James Version describes this as a level place. Remember, Jesus is coming off of a mountain and, and this, this commentary describes that right there in the region of Capernaum, it's, it's, there is a place where the mountain comes down to a, a, a level plateau, if you will. It's not a, a full plain. So the reason I say that is, is this doesn't mean that this is a separate message from the Sermon on the Mount, which was in Matthew chapter 5. They, there are similarities in this sermon that you're going to see here that Jesus gives uh, at this place on the plateau or the mountain, but it's probably the same message that Matthew gives in an expanded version in chapter 5 of Matthew. Luke is simply condensing this. He condenses out some of the portions of, of the Sermon on the Mount that pertain pr primarily to the law that would appeal to the Jewish audience that Matthew's writing to. Remember, Luke is writing to primarily Gentiles. And he takes the essence, he condenses the, the Sermon on the Mount to be the message that he has here in his gospel. But let's not, let's not get tangled up on, on location. 
Let's look at what the Lord has to say there. And notice that the target group there in verse 20. Then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples. That's the group that has chosen to follow him. Jesus is not speaking here primarily to the curious onlookers. He's directing his attention to his apostles. He's directing his attention to those even out as disciples. Because at this point, Jesus is beginning to teach about the kingdom of God. You may recall back in Mark, Matthew chapter 4 verse 17, it describes Jesus as he began his ministry. It says he was preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus made it clear in chapter 4 verse 43, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities here in Luke's gospel. So Jesus is preaching at this point. He's teaching the kingdom of God. I thought it was so interesting because that's what we celebrated as we read together from Isaiah 25 in our responsive reading. We're, not, we're, we're reading not about an ancient historical occurrence. We're reading about a future kingdom. And many of the wonderful, hopeful, exhilarated elements that you see described in this, this chapter 25 of Isaiah describe the coming kingdom that Jesus will usher in in his second coming. And Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God right here. He, he, and, and, and Luke does a wonderful job of, of giving parallel contrast in the language in which he uses that Jesus taught there. And it's interesting because Jesus uses two terms over and over. One is blessed. One group he's blessing. One group he's saying, woe to you. And we look at the first part there in verse 20. Blessed are you poor. What is Jesus talking about? He's not talking about people who are financially, materially poor. He's talking about people who are spiritually poor. Poor. And when he says blessed, he's using that Greek term makarios, which means this is the most beneficial, most favored position a person could ever hope to be in. It's a position with true well-being resulting from a right relationship with God. He says, happy are you who understand that you are spiritually poor. You humbly acknowledge that you are in great need of righteousness. What a contrast to the religious elite that made up Judaism. Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, and that group because they felt they were already righteous by their works. But not the populace. And Jesus is saying, oh listen, happy are you who, are, who recognize your spiritual poverty. For yours is the kingdom of God. This kingdom that I will be describing and unfolding for you, this will be yours. This is who God intends it for. Verse 21, he moves on to talk about blessed are you who hunger now. Not talking about physical hunger, but those who have spiritual hunger. Those who realize deep in their soul and in their spirit, they are yearning for the things of God, for the Word of God, for the truth of God. They want, they hunger, they, they thirst for this. Jesus says, blessed are you, happy are you, 
When you are in that position of humility, understanding that you are spiritually, by yourself, starving to death. He says, for you shall be filled. In the kingdom of God, God's children will not be hungry. We will be filled. And Jesus is the element that God will bring to, or the person that God will use to fill us spiritually. He says, blessed are those who hunger now. Spiritually, now. One day you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now. Who mourn now. These are people that are mourning, who are grieving over their unrighteousness. Do you grieve over sin? When you violate the principles of God's Word, when you, when you do the things, say the things that, that go diametrically opposed to what Christ teaches and who He is, does it cause you to grieve in your spirit? Or do you just kind of flippantly say, oh, well, nobody's perfect. You might, you might do well to listen to what James says in his epistle in chapter 4, verse 9. You'll recognize part of this. Go back to verse 7. He says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This is James chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. This is Team Kid memory verse. Team Kids are saying, Yay. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Listen to what he says in verse 9. Lament and mourn and weep, lest your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. Jesus said, happy are those, blessed are those who whenever they look at their lives and they see the presence of unrepented sin, they mourn before God. Weep over that. Because He says, through your forgiveness of sin and through your right relationship with God, you will have unending laughter in the kingdom of God. Joy in the kingdom of God. Verse 22, Jesus goes on to say again, Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. Jesus is saying to his disciples, he said, listen, when you stand for me and you witness for me and you live faithful for me and you go around and you quote my word and you represent me and he says people will revile you, people will hate you, they will say mockery about you, they'll revile you, they will, they will gossip about you. Jesus is not talking to the most popular people in Israel of that time, ladies and gentlemen. He's talking to the poor. He's talking to the hurting. He's talking to those who are outcasts socially, religiously. He's talking to people who are downtrodden and been cast down by, by a pious, self-righteous religious system that is spitting them out as useless and hopeless in the sight of God. And Jesus is saying to that crowd, listen, there's hope for you. But it starts with humbling yourself before God. 
and recognizing your spiritual poverty and hunger and your sinfulness and that you need what God is offering in his kingdom. He says, oh, rejoice in that day and leap for joy for indeed your reward is great in heaven. I think about the martyrs down through the ages who have lost their lives, who have been sacrificed so much, who's had their families taken and sold into slavery, who've been treated uh, in uh, inhumane ways. And listen, I think about the joy that they're experiencing now in the very presence of God, in that portion of the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus is saying to us. We don't need to be sheepish about standing for Christ. We don't need to apologize for being the follower of Jesus Christ. We shouldn't have to mutter under our breath the name of Jesus for fear that somebody is going to despise us or talk about us or ostracize us. Rejoice. Blessed are you. If you fit into these categories, blessed are you. And in contrast, as Jesus moves on in teaching this powerful sermon, and giving it to his disciples. And you'll notice the, if you follow the arrangement that Luke gives. And Luke is known as a, as a great writer. He's very organized in his thinking. And you'll see how he responds to each one of the blessings with a woe. And you know when he says woe folks. It's not talking to a mule to stop. For those of you that are country folk. He uses a, a word quay or Kui. It's a harsh word. It describes the worst unfavorable condition made up of calamity and disaster and damnation. Reserved for the wicked who reject God. Just as those who were blessed, you couldn't think there is no more better position to be in than to be blessed. Blessed. You can't get better than that. But on the other hand, in contrast, Jesus is saying, when the Lord Himself says to you, Whoa! Kuai! You can't get in a worse position than that. In the eyes of God. And in verse 24 He says, But woe to you, who are rich. He's not talking materially here. He's not talking financially here. He's talking to those who imagine themselves. Notice I said imagine themselves to be spiritually wealthy. He's talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to the scribes. He's talking to the Jewish religious leaders who think they've got it all. That they're God's gift to humanity in religion and righteousness. And Jesus is saying to that self-righteous group, Woe to you! Reminds me of a revelation in that letter written to the, the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. He says, Jesus is talking to the church at Laodicea. He says, Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? Jesus said, woe to you who have this imagination of being spiritually 
wealthy. He says, for you have received your consolation. The best is now. It gets worse from this point on. It's all downhill from here, all the way into the dark flames of hell where you'll be tormented in judgment forever. Woe to you who walk around thinking that you have got it all together because of your religiosity or your good works or your charity when you're absolutely broke in the eyes of God. Woe, he says in verse 25, to you who are full, those who are content in their self-righteousness, thinking that they have got it all. He says, for you shall hunger. He says, oh, you, you, your bellies may be filled with your religion and your rituals and your self-righteousness and your piety, but he says, guess what? In God's eyes, you are starving to death. And when you leave this world, you will live in an eternal state of spiritual hunger forever and ever and ever and ever, starving to death but never able to die. You'll be craving the love of God. You'll be craving the mercy of God. You'll be craving the goodness of God. And you will starve and starve and starve. Woe to you. Walk around with false food filling your religious bellies. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Oh, yes, those who are smugly enjoying their superficial morality, they're enjoying the popularity of the world, they're enjoying their religious system. They're going around, they're having their parties, patting each other on the back. They got it all made. They got their little religious clique and they're just having a time of their life and they're laughing now. But Jesus says, you shall mourn. You shall weep. You know, if you go over to Luke 13, 24, Jesus describes that outer darkness, that place of condemnation, that place of judgment as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. A place where people are in absolute torment, absolute anguish. They are in absolute misery. In the darkness of hell, in the flames that never go out, where they will be not for a hundred years, not for a thousand years, but for all eternity. And they will be weeping and their pain will be such that they'll be grinding their teeth and they'll be crying out for mercy and there will be no mercy. Jesus says, laugh now. But the party will come to a close one day. And there are a lot of people walking around with their smug ideas of religion having the time of their life, getting rich, preaching wealth and health and prosperity. But one day Jesus says, the party's coming to a close and there won't be all those things. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. And Jesus alludes to time in the Old Testament and prophet Isaiah preaching the truth and yet they rejected him and then all the false prophets of that time Jeremiah chapter 5 and verse 30 
it talks about how they were these false prophets were preaching and teaching to the people things that were not of God listen how God responded to that he says in chapter 5 of Jeremiah verse 30 an astonishing and horrible thing he has committed in the land the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule by their own power these are the people Jesus is saying woe to and my people love to have it so what will you do in the end? Jesus says to these who are false religious leaders, woe unto you. Oh yeah, the people might like your false teachings and your false prophecy. And folks in pulpits across this nation today, it breaks my heart to, to just imagine and know for a fact that there are men calling themselves men of God who are preaching a gospel, as Paul says, other than the true gospel. They're preaching that the Word of God is not truly the infallible, inerrant Word of God. They're teaching falsehoods to people. They're promoting sin as if it's good. And Jesus is saying to them, oh listen, they get an audience too. They fill, in, they fill up big sanctuaries. They fill up coliseums because they're tickling the ears of people who don't want to hear the truth. They can't stand the truth. So they go and they listen to these popular speakers who say the things they want them to hear that condone their sin and their lukewarm Christianity. And they say, oh yes, this is wonderful. Love everybody. And Jesus says, woe, woe to you. And all the people speak well of you for so they, their fathers, so did their fathers to the false prophets. I would submit that the preachers today that stand holy on the Word of God and teach and preach expositorily the authority of the Word of God are some of the most unpopular people and they were fast becoming some of the most unpopular people in the culture in which we live. And it wouldn't surprise me a bit one day to see Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, teaching pastors being dragged out of the pulpit in handcuffs and put in jail called hate mongers. And Jesus says, Woe unto you. Praise God. The Lord came with a wonderful message of the kingdom of God. He is our coming King. He offers hope in the midst of the calamity in which we live. He brings light into the darkness of our time. <laughs> when you read the teachings of Christ, particularly these wonderful teachings about the kingdom of God, the Lord is pointing ahead to that glorious day when He will be rightfully on His throne and all peoples from all nations will gather around and will be there around the throne of God where Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the precious sacrificial Lamb of God will hold the title deed to all of humanity. And all the angels will praise Him and the people will fall down before Him and worship Him in that glorious kingdom. Praise God that Jesus has revealed to us the coming of this glorious kingdom. Jesus Christ, our Lord, He is worthy. Amen? He is worthy of praise and honor 
and glory and dominion. He is worthy of all of our, our sacrifices and He's worthy of our very lives. He's worthy of the best that we have to give Him. He is worthy. He who is the Son of God and is the King of kings and the Lord of lords will, will reign in glory one day and we will be in His midst and the things that He has preached that are coming will be a reality and we will be laughing and we will be in joy and we'll be filled spiritually. And we'll all be responding, He is worthy. 